Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, and wildlife restoration. If you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference, regardless of your current circumstances, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And if you come along for this journey, I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all. So give it a listen, and if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Jan Hintermeister. Jan is a prolific volunteer in many environmental causes and organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jan has been a longtime field volunteer and served multiple terms as board chair for the nonprofit San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory. He's been a county parks commissioner, a member of the Santa Clara Valley Open Space Authority Citizen Advisory Committee, was instrumental in establishing a unique 40-acre open space preserve that's now in the shadow of Levi Stadium, the home of the San Francisco 49ers, and much more. In fact, we regretted not having time to speak of Jan's hands-on volunteering as a field trip leader and open space docent, two very accessible ways for nature enthusiasts to make an impact. To help set the stage for those unfamiliar with the organizations Jan has contributed to, most are in the San Francisco Bay Area, a metro of about 7 million people. Santa Clara County, the home of Silicon Valley, is about 2 million people itself. The area is endowed with varied habitats, including an oceanfront, tidal marshes, valley and hilly oak savanna and woodlands, and temperate rainforests in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The area has a unique mix of strong commercial interests of Silicon Valley and also high environmental awareness and resources. This creates a unique dichotomy of challenges and opportunities. In this episode, we discuss Jan's ability to maintain a productive Silicon Valley engineering career while being a prolific and effective volunteer, how he got engaged in both the environmental and political side of volunteering, and what it means to be a board member or parks commissioner. Jan offers a lot of practical advice for engaging locally and making an impact. As always, please visit podcast.naturesarchive.com for show notes and links to all of the organization books and resources we discussed today. You might notice in the interview with Jan that the audio quality at times is a little bit poor. I did my best to make it as listenable as possible, but if there's anything that you can't understand, feel free to drop me a question. Also, check out the show notes where I tried to document everything that we talked about. Thank you. Without further delay, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Jan Hintermeister. Jan, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, it's great to be here. As we talked about in the intro, you have a long history of volunteerism, and one of the things that I'm always interested in hearing from my guests is how you got interested in nature in the first place that led to all of this volunteering that you've done over the years. That's kind of interesting. I, I grew up in southwestern Minnesota, and you know there was a lot of nature around, but I didn't really show any particular interest in nature as a kid. You know, we had a national monument that I would go visit. So I did a little bit of hiking and walking around in the woods and stuff like that, but nothing major. Uh, not like one of those intense kids that becomes a bird at a very young age and is just uh, you know, an expert by the time they're 12. So my real interest and um, interest in following in nature really didn't happen until I came out to California um, after I finished college. Once I came out to California, I went to graduate school at Stanford. Um, after that, I just started hiking as a way of relaxation, uh, getting a little bit of exercise. And really, it's, the, it's that at that time in my early 20s when I re- really developed an interest. I got interested in birds as a result of hiking. So for me, it's, it, was, it, was at a, 
is a fairly um, old age relative to a lot of people that show a precocious interest when they're very young. That, that wasn't me. I really developed that you know, once I was an adult and starting to work. I think I can identify with that. I enjoyed hiking as a kid myself, but it was a slow evolution, I think, for me, where I would see something interesting and have a little bit of curiosity and look into it. Kind of started with the the big megafauna uh, and then grew into the fact that, you know, some things you can see everywhere, like birds, and uh, it just slowly grew over time. So here I am. 44 years old and uh, and now I'm kind of interested in all things nature and it, it's taken all that time for it to grow. When we were talking in advance of the interview, you had an interesting quote um, that you said was, uh, with a little bit of knowledge, new windows open. And I wrote that down because it really resonated with me. I, I'm curious, you said you started hiking. Was that, was that that trigger for the little bit of knowledge or did something else happen along the way that sort of you had an epiphany one day saying, you know what, I want to learn more. Well, it was, it was a little bit, bit of, of an epiphany. I mean, I realized that I was, I started to hike. I really enjoyed that. But a lot of the hiking became a matter of going from like point A to point B where I was just going from one place to another. And I thought, well, you know, this could potentially be really interesting if I kind of knew a little bit about, you know, what I was seeing. I mean, this sounds crazy, but I'd always been interested in continuing education. And I noticed there was an ornithology class uh, being taught at Foothill College. And I just said to myself, well, you know, maybe I'll uh, learn a little bit about birds. And I signed up for this class and the guy that taught it, Mr. Moffat, a uh, great guy, I mean, we learned all about bird orders and adaptations for flight and all this kind of stuff. But what Mr. Moffat really liked to do was take us out on weekends and just introduce us to birding in the field, seeing birds in, in different places. I found that we were often visiting places I've been before, the San Mateo Coast, Merritt Park. You know, uh, Lake Merritt, all kinds of all kinds of interesting places. Uh, with this class and with Mr. Moffat, it was like I was seeing it, seeing everything in a totally new way. Because maybe I've been to this place before, but the the window into birds, seeing birds, watching their behavior, was just like I'd enter another alternate reality, another dimension. And uh, so that really opened my eyes. I mean, really, any kind of education is sort of like that. I mean, whether it's a philosophy course or woodworking or, you know, anything you learn has that kind of element to it where it just expands your horizons, it expands kind of the connections you make and really opens your eyes to another world that was always there, but you just hadn't been aware of its existence. So that's what happened to me in that class. And uh, that started me as a beginning birder, which I kind of continued for a long time, birding whenever I had the opportunity, whether it was short trips I would take as part of business trips, like the weekend before or the weekend after a business trip somewhere. You know, I'd kind of go visit an area and kind of you know, learn some new birds. Uh, but that stuck with me for a really long time and became one of those, you know, lifelong things that I've, I've really enjoyed ever since. Right. That's uh, that's one of the things that really draws me to the field of ecology or conservation is it is a lifelong pursuit. The systems are so complex that you're never done learning. 
There's always something else. Yeah, it is really amazing because I noticed this about birds when I first started. Because at first, you're just kind of going out to see birds. And for me, it was like large, slow birds that were easy to identify, ducks and geese, some of the shore birds. And then you start to look for birds that aren't quite as you know easy to find. But then just this whole world opens up. You see behavior, uh, feeding behavior. You start to learn songs. Just in any subject worth studying, it never really ends. There's always more to it. Uh, and, and birds was certainly my entry into that world. So you, you had referenced a interesting story, in fact. You mentioned behavior. When you're out in the field, or you're taking hikes, you're watching things. And inevitably, at some point, you see something really interesting and surprising. And I think you had a story about some wild turkey and a coyote. Yeah, I, um, you know, once I, once I started birding, after a few years, I began joining birding organizations. And one of the organizations I joined, you know, back in the early 80s was the San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory. They are very interested in research and they're protecting birds and their habitats is their, is their mission. But there's a lot of citizen science projects, opportunities for uh, ordinary people to get involved in science projects. And one of the projects I got involved in many, many years ago, uh, we call it colonial water bird monitoring. We count nests of all the colonial water birds, gulls and terns, uh, herons and egrets in the South Bay. And uh, volunteers are assigned a colony. My colony is up at Grant Ranch, uh, Joseph D. Grant County Park. And I've had many, many interesting experiences up there as I've kind of found a good place to observe my great blue heron colony from. Uh, there's a big meadow that I, I used to visit very regularly when the colony was in this location. Anyhow, one, one, uh, one uh, spring I was out there and I, I had to hop a fence and walk out into this meadow. And as I walked in, out into this meadow, early in the morning especially, there's often wild turkeys out of Grand Ranch. So I was walking out into this meadow and, and it just so happened at that time there was a, a flock of wild turkeys. And of course, they didn't really appreciate my presence. So they kind of wandered away out of sight over a ridge and it just disappeared. So they're gone. I'm sitting at my my spotting scope, you know, my binoculars, you know, my notepad to take notes. And I look up and I see all these turkeys coming back my direction and now moving a little bit faster, not running, but moving with a purpose. So they kind of all 20 of them or so kind of walk by me, moving off and, and then disappear. And then a couple of minutes later, I look up at the same uh, rise they came from and a coyote appears at the top. It was just really, uh, you know, to me, it's just a really interesting experience. And you get this when, you, when you, you're out in nature, where things happen you don't necessarily expect. And kind of being in the situation where, you know, a group of turkeys go off, they come back with a purpose, and a coyote appears. It's just a really rare opportunity to sort of see some nature in action. You know, it's not like cheetahs chasing gazelles, uh, but still, it's a little window. And, uh, and just an, an interesting opportunity to see something. And that's the great thing about being outdoors is you just never, ever know what's going to happen. And when I hear that story, what partly resonates with me is I think the time you spent in the field, you were able to draw that conclusion about the turkey behavior, that something was amiss. And perhaps that's why you actually saw the coyote, someone maybe less aware 
perhaps wouldn't have even thought to, you know, have that radar to see what else is going on. Yeah. The other nice thing about um, this um, volunteer or citizen science volunteer opportunity, I'd say every year for the last 20 years, I go to Grant Ranch Park and I'll go there maybe 10 times during the spring and early summer. It's really so great to be able to go back to the same place year after year after year. In my case, be there from early spring uh, before nesting starts for great little herons and then go into late June, early July as you know, everything dries up in California, the grasslands are all dry. And just see the transition and be in that place year after year after year. It's really great. When I'm there, I always stop and visit the lake. There's a lake nearby that has interesting waterfall. Uh, bald eagles are in that area regularly now where they didn't used to be. It's really interesting to see the change over over the years and, and then come back repeatedly. It really is a special park and yeah, having that consistency over time makes it all the more special. This year, I know that the, uh, that the colonial water, waterbird surveys were interrupted by, uh, by the pandemic. So were you still doing these surveys up until this year? Yes. During the first month or so of the pandemic, I totally stayed home. So I did not follow my colony. But then about a month ago, I started returning because it was, it's fairly safe in the sense that um, a lot of the county parks, the uh, Open Space Authority, you know, kept their parks open so people could still visit. And in my particular case, my colony is a little bit difficult to find. You know, so I, I, I park, I, I hike to it on a trail that's really I've never seen anybody else on. It's kind of a short, not very well marked trail. In the last month, I've been there probably three times to revisit my colony, at least see the end of the nesting season. What sorts of conclusions have you drawn from the 20 or so years you've been tracking it? I, do you see any trends, uh, variability, int any interesting observations that you've just made personally? Well, you know, this colony is really small. So um, I've had anywhere from like, typically it's like two to six nests. The last few years, it's been on the small side. I think this year there have been uh, three nests. The most interesting thing about the herons is they have been consistent. Um, there's a little bit of fluctuation in, in the number of nests and the number of chicks. It's, it's been fairly constant. It goes up and down a little bit. What's really interesting is they've kind of moved the colony to three different locations over that 20 years. For the longest time, about 10 years, uh, they were in this one area where I, I had to watch them from this meadow. I'd walk in this meadow and I could look at a set of eucalyptus trees across the meadow uh, where the colony was. But then one year I went up there and the colony had vanished. I had no idea where it was. And I, I went week after week uh, revisiting and no colony, no colony. Until I was about ready to give up. And I was going to give it one final shot to go up and you know, to see if they, if the great Mohairs returned. And I'm watching, and to the side, I hear chicks calling. Chicks, great blue heron chicks, in fact, this is true of all heron chicks, can make tremendous racket. They have this, the uh, great blue herons have this loud clacking sound. They're clack, 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 clack. And it's the noise they make, especially when the parents are coming in to feed them. So I heard them. It took me a little while, but I kind of wandered around uh, through a field and, 
and eventually found that they had moved to another location. And once I found that location, I found a, be a better spot that I could do them from. Uh, so they moved to a new location, probably only a quarter of a mile away uh, on private property, but I could view them from all the of the road. Uh, so then they were there for quite a while, another five or six years uh, in this sort of new location, still in eucalyptus trees. And then uh, one year I showed up and they disappeared from that area. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. So I went to another vantage spot where I had a much better view of all of uh, Grant Park. I kind of watched and watched and watched and eventually saw some herons fly low into another eucalyptus grove in another location. And they've been there now for several years. So it's been really interesting to see just how this colony, a very small colony, has moved into different locations, um, all within, say, like a mile or so of each other, but still moving. And why is that? I mean, I don't really know. Uh, some people say that uh, you know, if, the, if a colony notices predators or if the nests potentially get infected with, uh, or infested with lice or you know, some kind of parasite, the colony will move or you know, come back to a location, decide it's not suitable anymore, and then move somewhere else. So it's probably something like that going on. But it's just really interesting to kind of see that thing that you only see if you pay attention to the same spot over many years. Yeah, that's the sort of question I think that would be really difficult to piece together an answer to. Those seem like good theories. Uh, it, it gets my brain going is that how do then do you construct a study to answer that question, right. which is probably a topic for, you know, another day. But <laughs> the herons are the herons uh, in a lot of colonial water birds are, are known to do even really big colonies, like there used to be a really big colony right side, right outside of the Viso uh, Environmental Education Center. There was a huge colony there, there that just vanished. You know, the total number of birds seems to be pretty constant over the years. So that huge colony just dispersed and went multiple locations. Uh, but yeah, it's really interesting to speculate as to, as to what causes that and what the motivation is. Right. So I, I do want to back up a little bit. You mentioned at the uh, onset of the discussion that uh, you were going to college in Minnesota and then came out to California. I think that was to uh, further pursue your education. For much of your life, you, you've you been an engineer. And right. I'm, I'm curious, so it's, it's almost like a dual life because you did so right. much volunteering while you were also working at some pretty well-known and, uh, and maybe challenging companies to work for. So I'm curious how you stayed motivated or maintained the energy over the years to sort of lead this dual life where uh, you have a demanding day job and then you're going out and contributing energy to all of these other efforts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that was, that was really, uh, really interesting. I, uh, it, as a kid, I always loved, I always loved math. I got a, my bachelor's degree was in mathematics. Then when I came up to graduate school at Stanford, I studied in a field called operations research, but at Stanford, it's just more theoretical mathematics. Uh, it turned out that uh, research and math really wasn't for me. Uh, it wasn't something I found that interesting. And I hadn't really thought about a job, about a career. I was not thinking very clearly <laughs> as a young man. So I was able to get into engineering at a time when in the Silicon Valley, Anybody could become an engineer. I mean, you could be a biologist with a little bit of a computer science background. 
or in my case, math, as long as you have some kind of technical skill or, or quantitative skill, you could join an, join a company and become an engineer. But yeah, as, as, as I got into engineering, I really enjoyed that. There's a lot of things I enjoyed about engineering. But simultaneously, as I looked for leisure time and uh, I started hiking and getting an interest in birds, I also developed this interest in, in nature. I really did become, uh, start having a dual life, you know, where I uh, worked in engineering during the day, I had a day job. And then uh, evenings, sometimes if I was going to meetings or weekends, I got involved in nature, in uh, different environmental causes, you know, a lot of, a lot of volunteer activities. Yeah, but I was also single. And, and also I, I found as a young man, for a long time, I just totally focused on work. And I think this is, I think this is a quite often uh, a pattern we see, you know, young working people maybe don't get as involved in, uh, in the environmental causes and things like that. And partly it's because they're so focused on their careers. They're focused on you know, starting a family and it's really hard to juggle all those things. So for me too, I had a kind of long gap there until sometime in my thirties, I started getting more involved in environmental uh, issues and, and really heavily involved in nature and volunteering for multiple organizations. Um, San Francisco Bay uh, Observatory, SFEBO, uh, that's been a constant in my life for probably 30 some years now where I've been a volunteer in many capacities. But I also, I banded hawks with uh, the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory for about seven years in the 90s. Uh, going up to Marin County every couple of weeks to uh, uh, sit in a, a blind uh, capturing and banning hawks, which was really fun. And then I also got involved in other organizations and environmental causes. Uh, locally, I worked in the uh, in the 90s to um, get an area that we now call the Ulistek Natural Area, to get that area preserved right in the middle of Santa Clara. And that was really my first step kind of outside actual nature into more um, advocacy, you know, working with people to pursue uh, an environmental end. That work really was also a springboard into other volunteer activities that were maybe not so much nature oriented in terms of field work, uh, but get involved in organizations and committees, you know, working on open space and environmental issues. I think that Ulistack is a really interesting example of what people can do to make a difference. Uh, for for those who have been to the South Bay going out birding, they've probably heard or seen Ulistack. And just to describe it a little bit, for those who haven't seen it, it sits in the middle of, I guess what I would call a mixed use zone, where you have some medium density housing and not very far away, there's also some commercial larger businesses. And then it's sort of in the shadow of Levi Stadium where the 49ers play. As I understand it, this this area, and you can fill in the rest of the story, uh, at one point in time was marked for development. And Santa Clara is uh, a very development-driven sort of community here in the Bay Area. And can you just fill in the gaps as to how you got involved and how that came to be and how you achieved success? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll tell, tell you a little bit about that. Uh, the Ulistack and a lot of the townhouses that are nearby 
it was actually uh, years ago, it was a medicinal golf course. At some point, the uh, Santa Clara city government decided to develop this golf course and build a new golf course. The new golf course is now old. It's now been replaced by Levi Stadium. But this uh, former golf course was rapidly developed into a series of, of townhouse developments. And then sometime back in the 80s, the real estate market took a temporary collapse. And the last 40-acre uh, section of this former golf course was just left to life fallow for, for many years uh, while the real estate market recovered. But in that time, some local people in Santa Clara started to use it as a, a birding location. In terms of my involvement, uh, one day I'm just home and I, over a couple of days, I got letters from the local uh, chapter of the Sierra Club and a letter from the uh, Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society saying, we have this area. I'd never been there, actually, so I didn't know anything about it. But the letter said, we have this area. We'd like to try to protect it from development. And please come to a city council meeting. I really knew nothing about what I was getting involved in, but it kind of piqued my interest. So I went to the city council meeting. I've never been to a city council meeting before. And there I met other people that had gotten the same letter, uh, but also some people that were going to help organize this effort to try to save this 40-acre site from development and set it aside as open space. It was really, like I said, it was my first involvement in any kind of city politics. I've always been like a religious voter. When I turned 18, I started voting, 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 voting. I just, I've always voted. But I never really, uh, um, up until that time, voted for the city elections because I felt I didn't really know the people. I wasn't really involved in my kind of local government. But getting involved in this effort to preserve this piece of land got me going to city council meetings, subcommittees of various kinds, uh, meeting with the citizens group, which we call People for Open Space in Santa Clara, kind of formed our own little advocacy group. And with some very valuable organiza organizational talent, uh, like Craig Breon from the uh, Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society, a local organizer here in Santa Clara, Paul Barnett, Chris Salander, and Gene Salander, this kind of core group of people uh, started to lobby on behalf of protecting this piece of land from development. We got involved in an election and helped elect some new members to what had been a fairly staid city council. And eventually that city council, some of whose members we helped elect, walking door to door, just you know, standard political effort at the local level, uh, we were able to get the city to set aside this piece of property. Santa Clara, as you mentioned, has this reputation as being very, very development oriented. So at that time, especially, this was a shock because it's just the kind of thing that didn't happen in Santa Clara. For years afterwards, we always felt that what became the Ulistek natural area was in jeopardy. At times, there were talk, there was talk about using it for parking for the stadium or for other purposes or cutting it sized in half or doing all kinds of things. But over the years, it has developed a real constituency. Really, it's now recognized as a real jewel of kind of a local open space area. Uh, well-known to birders, well-known to people around the area. It's become a real beloved part of what Santa Clara has to offer. 
terms of recreation. It's, uh, it, it turned out to be a great success story and was really my introduction to the environment and environmental costs uh, and working at that sort of grassroots level. Yeah, I think that getting involved in local issues is something that seems foreign and difficult, which is surprising when, when we take a step back and think about it. These are the people that are here in our own communities and you know how hard is it really to engage but you're, you're exactly right it seems like we do pay a lot more attention to national politics and and, and those sorts of elections and i think that, that making an impact like that locally is overlooked and uh, i i like your story because it really motivates me to pay more attention as well and see see where these things come up he's like looking at it just bear with me for a moment but looking at Ulistack. Every time I go there, I see families, I see people from the nearby townhouses enjoying it. It connects to Guadalupe River. Yeah. And it just, even though it seems somewhat isolated as a 40-acre patch, it's really strategically located for for people to use and learn about nature, to connect, say, for joggers. And if you're a migrating bird and you're coming up on the San Francisco Bay, it's a really nice place to stop. Uh, you know, it, it provides a refueling overnight stop. It, it works so well. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, your point is well taken. I, so that was my first introduction to city politics. It is true, though, if you follow any local issue in your local city, you know, it is so easy, you know, in the matter of a couple meetings to know who all your city council people are and also kind of basically where they sit on a lot of issues. If you go to a couple meetings, they also know you, and it's very easy to get engaged uh, if you have the interest in local politics. Surprisingly easy. It is the place where most people can make the most immediate difference. It does take uh, time, like anything else that's worth doing. You invest the time, and you could potentially get some great results. Ulastack is really interesting, too, because... It is a former golf course. You may not recognize that as you walk through, but if you're aware that it was a former golf course, you can actually kind of visualize in one area the fairways, a couple ponds on either end. So it's also an example of, of how areas like open space can be uh, reused. What was a golf course is now this very exciting natural area. There's been hundreds and hundreds of volunteers that have worked there over the years. There's a butterfly garden that was all you know, really extensive now that was put in by volunteers and continued habitat restoration efforts all through that area, all done by volunteers. It's an amazing example of what uh, uh, community people can get together and, uh, and create. Right. And for, for people looking to invest in such projects, uh, there's a really interesting thing that I've seen at Ulistack and that's they, they have a corporate outreach where teams from different companies come in and they volunteer as part of their volunteer efforts for, for companies. And they'll come in and uh, remove non-natives or plant new plants or clean up. Uh, and it's just another great way to engage the community. And hopefully some percentage of those people come away with a greater appreciation for what these sorts of developments are. I, I call it a development, but natural areas. It was It was developed into a natural area. Uh, but the the value that they provide. As you engaged in, so you were volunteering for SFBBO, you came to learn of this local endeavor 
here. And I think that opened additional doors for you to maybe branch out into other areas of volunteering. And I don't know what came next. I know you've been involved in the Citizens Committee for the Open Space Authority, county parks. Uh, Can you walk me through a little bit about how those doors opened and how you identified the opportunity to walk through them? Sure. So as part of working with Ulastack, of course, you know, I, I began to make a lot of connections, you know, both with, with people right in Santa Clara, but also with um, the Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society, the Sierra Club, and then also an early uh, board member uh, for the um, Santa Clara Valley Open Space Authority, of which um, Santa Clara is one of the, is one of the jurisdictions as part of that open space agency. And as a result, um, I had an opportunity to be appointed to a citizens advisory committee for the Open Space Authority that um, aids the board and the Open Space Authority staff in various ways. That was great. And actually, as a result of that, it's just one of those things. I mean, everyone's life is like this. You have this spidery web of connections you know, that leads out. Every, every, every activity you do, you meet new people, and it gives you more opportunities to you know, extend your own network. So as a result of working with the Open Space Authority, I was working with some ex-county parks commissioners. And through meeting them um, uh, and being introduced uh, to uh, a supervisor in the county, I was appointed to the, uh, the County Parks and Recreation Commission. Uh, and I was on that commission for, for about 12 years. Through that, I, I got involved in the uh, Santa Clara Valley Habitat Conservation Plan. Now just called the Habitat Agency, and I've been on an advisory committee for that uh, group for probably 12 or 15 years now. So, you know, once you start getting involved in these types of activities, you know, I found, I found my network expanding. There were just more and more opportunities to volunteer my time and contribute into, to something that became a passion for me, which was open space. You know, I started being interested in birds and nature and wildlife, uh, and that still is kind of a core thing for me. But as as I matured and kind of continued in that work, I began to realize the importance of preservation of open space. That, I think, resonates with a lot of people in the Bay Area. We, our community, has done an incredible job preserving land in Santa Clara County, and, and really the entire Bay Area through different open space agencies, you know, parks. In Santa Clara, we're lucky to have like an enormous state park in Henry Cole. The Nature Conservancy has a bunch of land out in the eastern reaches. So we've had a lot of agencies that have worked diligently to preserve and protect open space in our area. It's really astounding. When I was uh, living back in Minnesota, I grew up in a rural community. And it took me a long time to realize how different that rural community that I grew up in was from being out in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area, we have so many opportunities for uh, open space recreation, for hiking, biking, you know, whatever you're interested in. You go back to much of the rural Midwest, and people don't often think about it this way, but from an environmental perspective, uh, the former prairies in the Midwest and the agricultural areas throughout the Midwest are really some of the most devastated areas environmentally in the United States. Because, you know, like 95% of 
what used to be prairies is now slowly being in cornfield. We're in a little bit of the same situation here with our um, marshlands around the bay, where you know probably 90 to 95% of our salt marshes were converted to salt ponds in the course of the late 1800s uh, you know, through into the 1950s. And now we're getting some of that back through land purchases from Cargo and restoring some uh, salt ponds back to salt marsh. Um, but it is really interesting to look at the big perspective of the Bay Area and be able to look and see what a great job citizens have done through various citizen efforts and government agencies to protect land, to provide for species, you know, wildlife, recreation opportunities, preserving some of the really important things that continue to make us, allow us to feel human you know, by visiting our open space areas. I agree. And I grew up in Nebraska. So Nebraska sort of has a transition, at least historically, from short grass prairie to tall grass prairie. And there's different sets of species that live in both. So I have to admit, uh, in the back of my mind, I've always thought it would be really interesting to get involved in a project that restores some of that. And uh, so if anyone knows of anything or wants to pitch anything to me, I'm all ears. That would be a, a fun one to take a look at. So I think some people are aware of like corporate boards and advisory committees that exist uh, in, in the world of uh, corporations. Can you tell me a little bit about how they work, say, for a parks commissioner or an open space authority? What's what's sort of the day in the life of a board member or SFBBO for that matter? Um, you know, what, is, what does it look like? What, what are you doing? What sort of impact are you making in that role? You know, I, I would kind of contrast something like SFBBO, the San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory, as a, as a nonprofit. So I've been on their board now 15 years in two different stints uh, with advisory committees to like the Open Space Authority or, um, or, or, or county parks. On a nonprofit board, you're setting strategy for how the organization is going to spend its money and you're raising money. So you're very, very much directly involved in essentially supporting a, a small nonprofit business through fundraising and determining strategic directions. Again, that can be very rewarding. Yeah, I really enjoyed my time there. For me, it was never uh, enough to be a board member. I've continued to be like a volunteer to lead hikes and to be engaged with uh, SFBBO in many different ways. Advisory boards or say open space agencies, you know, typically they have a governing board that's elected. Being elected is a whole different level of engagement, which I was never really interested in. But a lot of these also have uh, citizen groups, citizen advisory groups. Everyone is a little bit different depending on how the governing board and the paid staff of the organization, like the Open Space Authority or County Parks, uh, kind of how they want to use the board. But a lot of, of a lot of those committees are involved in helping to draft policies, some planning efforts. I know in the county parks we always worked on the, on the fee schedule for parking and other kinds of activities in county parks. So you can really be asked to a wide variety of things. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of engineering, at least in the engineering that I did. I would also be involved in projects from the very beginning conception. You know, through development, maybe integration with other contractors, equipment, 
and then testing and installation of, of equipment. So, you know, my job is always changing. A lot of the environmental agency committees are a little bit like that. There's always different things going on, different planning efforts, policies and procedures. I know with the Open Space Authority, for example, they uh, apportion part of their funds not towards, you know, large ranch land purchases out in Santa Cruz Mountains or the Diablo Range, but to urban projects. For example, the Open Space Authority has an urban open space program that provides a grant funding to nonprofits and other organizations to do local open space, essentially bringing nature into urban areas to the people. Our Citizens Advisory Committee has been very much involved in evaluating the different applications that come in for grant money. Uh, we also were involved early on in interviewing different land agencies that were involved in agriculture in other parts of the Bay. Uh, for example, I remember calling several up on the North Bay, where they were very much in the forefront of trying to preserve agricultural land, say in Marin and Sonoma County. That's been something that the Open Space Authority wanted to get involved in, and it's been a part of their mission, is preservation of agricultural land. So our committee was very much involved in kind of initially collecting information as to the experiences of other organizations in other parts of the area, and trying to figure out how to bring that, uh, that perspective and uh, their experiences to bear in, uh, in Santa Clara County. That's kind of a roundabout answer to, to uh, your question. I mean, the fact is, none of these advisory committees or advisory councils are the same, but there are lots of opportunities to contribute and shape the policy and the direction of uh, agencies. You know, when I talk to people, I do encourage them to consider things like that, but also to look at their own, their own city committees. I just recently uh, joined our uh, board of library trustees in uh, Santa Clara because libraries have always been really close to my heart. And the opportunity to work on a library board was uh, just too much to resist. And it's been great. And there are so many local city committees that are involved in, in different aspects. For people especially that have been involved in uh, the work world, like an engineering or kind of many, many pursuits where you are involved in a development or making recommendations or, or basically have an office job, a lot of those skills are directly transferable to working with uh, advisory committees and to supporting local nonprofits. I mean, local nonprofits are always looking for volunteers, and uh, your volunteer time can be a tremendous support to uh, local organizations. I think for a lot of people, it's just a matter of following your passion. You know, find something you really enjoy doing. For me, it's been the environment and open space. You know, as I've gotten more involved in my in my nonprofit that I work with, with SFDBO, you know, I find that when I meet other people that are working with nonprofits that are, say, on a board or staff, we all have the same issues. Fundraising, growing the board, figuring out how to use volunteers, and whether that nonprofit is involved in the environment or health and human services or the arts. You know, they're all very, very deserving of people's support. So as an individual, you know, you just need to find your passion and figure out, you know, what it is really makes you tick. 
And if you find that, you will find organizations that serve that need and are consistent with your values and where you can really make a contribution. That's what I've tried to do, uh, especially as I've retired and I've had more time, you know, to get involved and continue to stay involved in organizations I've, uh, I've now established relationships and worked with for many, many years. I think that's great advice. And obviously there's a deep satisfaction that comes along with volunteering. I think that that uh, sort of tickles a part of our psyches that uh, getting paid to do work maybe doesn't. So this might be a little bit divergent from the theme of what we've been talking about, but did, were you ever tempted to move into some environmental-based role as a paid career or a, a you know sort of a paid position? You know, I it, that would be something that I, um, over the course of my career in engineering, I would kind of think about periodically. Uh, but the fact is, I also really enjoyed engineering. I had a lot of job satisfaction. You know, over the years, I worked with great people. I still have an interest in math and science, you know, that I maintain. You know, not everyone does that. I know a lot of, I know a lot of people that have kind of said, you know, I'm, I'm done with the engineering world. I'm going to go do something else. I, I had a board member that I worked with uh, for SFPDO uh, that was uh, with Hewlett Packard. And is now a, a bat biologist. You know, left Hewlett Packard and went back to school, and uh, is now uh, now busy studying bats. So everyone kind of has to find their own path. You know, for me, I enjoyed being an engineer, and I enjoyed being outdoors, and I really pursued both of those. I was happy to leave engineering behind and give away all my books, and uh, you know, leave that world and have more time to pursue uh, volunteer activities. For me, the dual life worked out, you know, where I was kind of pursuing both engineering career um, and uh, working with, you know, the natural world and, and open space. I think about volunteers a lot. You know, I often think of volunteers as being my favorite people because, you know, it's just really great to be around people who are giving of themselves, you know, giving of their, of their money, given of their time. And really it's time. I mean, time is for all of us, it's probably our most valuable resource. You know, it's the one thing that we never have enough of. You know, volunteers are giving that great resource to some cause that they believe in. And to me, that's, that's just a beautiful thing. And you really have to respect and love people that are uh, involved in that and are, are willing to make those kinds of commitments, whatever they're volunteering for. All right. More great perspective. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion today because I think that you have so much interesting perspective and knowledge in the space. And I know that just sitting here chatting, I could probably go on forever. But uh, to, to maybe wrap things up, one thing I do like to ask about is uh, I'm curious if there has been any book in particular you know, related to what we've been talking about today that's been influential to you that, that you might recommend or that just springs to mind? Well, you know, we haven't talked about this, but um, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, I know, like I, I said, I was a bookish child, so I've, I've, I've been reading books all my life. I've read a lot of books. And I have to say that, like most books, you read and uh, maybe you pick up a few things 
you know, get some new perspectives. Uh, but then you move on to the next book. There's very few books that, that I go back and I kind of go, wow, that was just an amazing book. And there's a couple books that really have stuck with me over the years. And it'd be surprising because they're not you know, specific, specific about birds or, or anything like that. But I remember when I, many years ago, read the book Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. This is a book about essentially the development of water as a resource in the West. I remember reading this book, and I, I know other people have had the same experience, where you learn the history of how we got to be where we are. History provides such an incredible perspective. And we have this generational issue where you grow up and you see the way the world is. And the natural assumption is to think that it's always been that way. It's hard for us to appreciate the broad uh, expanse of history and how things have changed. For me, reading this book, Cadillac Desert, and seeing how the West was transformed by water projects, how our fisheries were destroyed, how dams were put up everywhere, early visitors that were coming to a farm in a desert were sold a bill of goods about how easy it was going to be. Uh, it's, it was just an amazing perspective. I have never gone back to reread that, reread that book, but it just provided an incredible perspective on living out in the West and uh, water issues in general. Another book that I really remember is uh, a book that I read uh, many years ago that is a little bit relevant now. Uh, it was called The Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett. This book, I, I think Laurie Garrett was a science, science journalist, but years ago, I don't know how old this book is, maybe it's 20 years old, uh, maybe even older. She wrote about the potential diseases and uh, went through the history of disease, describing how so many of our diseases are due to human beings moving into new areas, running into new animals, or developing new relationships with animals that result in disease transference from animals to human beings. And so it was a combination of a medical story, but also a biodiversity and environmental protection story about you know, sometimes the wisdom of keeping human beings out of certain areas where you have potential disease reservoirs. That book always stuck with me. And of course, in our time of uh, COVID, that especially resonates. You know, I know when I first heard about the coronavirus, you know, they started talking about these wet markets in Wuhan, China. I go, you know, Lori Garrett, that was what she was talking about many years ago. Right. I hope that that theme gets a little bit more play as we gain more perspective on the virus. I think, you know, most of the focus right now is just getting through this and figuring out the new practices and the medical treatments and, um, and the, the biology of, uh, of the virus. But um, it's, it's one of those things where when you look at it from a sort of risk model perspective, the risk of those interactions that lead to viruses is immense. Like you just look at what happened to the world, largely getting shut down uh, and the number of deaths that, that come along with that. Now the likelihood isn't real high. Like these things, you know, we look at history every five years, something comes up and we've been able to squash most of them early before they turn into the, the global pandemic. But, uh, but they're high enough given the risk that, that these, 
these sorts of policies or protections, I think, uh, need to go into place to uh, to avoid this happening again. So I hope that gets more play as uh, as we gain perspective. It's a little bit like earthquakes. And that's, and that's why Garrett um, named her book The Coming Plague, because from the historical perspective, these things will happen. And there's things you can do to ameliorate that and uh, kind of reduce the chances, but they are going to happen. Uh, similar to our situation with earthquakes. I mean, we are going to have the big one. It's a matter of time and we need to be prepared. But that's a, it's a very great perspective. And, you know, maybe we'll learn this time and uh, be better prepared uh, for the future. I hope so. And I hope it's a transferable learning that can be applied to things like earthquakes as well. (laughs) Climate change, for example. Okay. Well, I, Jan, thank you so much for spending all of this time. I I think, at least for me, it's been very enlightening and I hope to everyone who's listening, uh, it is as well. So I will have show notes for this. So all the, all the organizations that were mentioned, the books that were mentioned, I'll include links to those. Uh, is there any, uh, any other call outs you want to make as to where people could follow some of the organizations or, or you personally and the, and the work that you're doing? Well, um, you know, I, um, like the longest running organization I've been with is you know, they have a, a great website, with uh, resources and uh, very active social media. So a lot of what I do now is uh, with SFBBO. You know, so I'd encourage people to check that, check out that organization. But then all of our open space agencies are just very involved in, you know, very interesting, interesting activities from actually preserving open space to um, education, education, educating people about uh, the value of open space, uh, the species that we have, and the opportunities. And uh, as open space agencies, I also think of Peninsula Open Space Trust, who's done such an incredible job protecting land in the Bay Area. So uh, those are organizations that uh, come to mind. Yeah, I think one of the problems we have, it, 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 shouldn't, it shouldn't really be a problem, but I know everyone has this issue, is really there's just too much information. We're just uh, awash in a sea of information. So, you know, I think the most important thing any of us can do is really to just keep informed. You'd like to believe that would be like a really easy thing when there's just so much information around. But uh, you know the problem is there's just too many issues. But keeping informed, you know, from like local issues you know, up to national societal issues, is probably the most important thing that any of us can do. It's just have an awareness and continue to learn and grow, making the world better in however way we do. You know, by following your passion. Well, I think that's an excellent place to leave it today. So thank you again, Jan. I really appreciate all of the time you spent. Ain't no problem. Um, great to be able to chat. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. 
Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music heard in the podcast. Both songs are produced by Kevin McLeod, whose work can be found at incompetech.filmmusic.io. The song heard at the intro is called Fearless First, and the song at closing is called Beauty Flow. Please enjoy.